Ephesians 1 ESV. <clears throat> last week that I preached, I'm going to just back this up just a little bit. Last week that I preached, if you remember, we concluded with six main in Him graces bestowed by the Father for those in Christ in Ephesians 1. Including how the Father has, one, blessed us in Christ. Verse 3 says, Two, how He chose us in Him. Verse 4. Three, how the Father adopted us in the Beloved. Verses 5-6. through six. Number four, how in Him, Christ, we have redemption through His blood. Verse 7. Five, how we who are in Him have obtained an inheritance. Verse 11-12. And last week we looked at the final blessing for those in Christ as it pertains to the first part of Ephesians 1 anyway, who were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Or God, the Holy Spirit Himself as the pledge of glory for the saints. Or the Holy Spirit Himself as the deposit which guarantees the quote-unquote down payment or the quote-unquote earnest of our inheritance, of our glorification when we will be finally freed from the presence of sin. We looked at more closely at what it means for the Holy Spirit Himself to be that pledge or the earnest of our inheritance. In that the promise is so secure that if the promise were to not be fulfilled, God would cease to be God and or He would have to deny Himself, which is not going to happen. We also looked at how his, this promise was and is applied to those in Him. That a hearing and a believing of the Gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, must take place. How there is a type of hearing and a type of believing the Gospel that can take place which produces self-deception or a type of false self-confidence in that it does not produce action or obedience to His Word, to His commands, but rather will produce in the end judgment, which leads to hell. We also looked at more closely what the gospel or the good news is. 
which ultimately is God the Son, Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. The one whom we are to hear and believe in or rely on, placing our full trust in, turning from sin. Jesus, God the Son, of whom God the Father Himself presented to live a life of righteousness in your stead, who appeased the wrath of God for your sin in your stead by His death on the cross. The cost of being made sin for us. He was buried and then rose from the grave, defeating death in your stead, that you may be declared righteous by God's grace, His unmerited favor through faith in Christ alone. Romans 10.14 reminds us, how then will they call on Him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? The proclamation of the gospel is of utmost importance if men are to hear and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. We should, as I stated similarly in one of the first messages pertaining to the first part of Ephesians 1 as a whole thus far, often reflect slash visit upon these rich blessings that we've looked at throughout the past weeks. And the Word in general, especially the Gospel, for at least a couple reasons. One, we as Christians are weak and forgetful, often susceptible to pride or despair. And number two, we live in a fallen world. If you remember in the book of Galatians chapter 1 where Paul says in verse 6, I'm amazed that you're so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. If we ourselves are not steeped in his word, how susceptible do you think we are to error and or drifting from the truth? The second we step away from Scripture as authority is the second we step into foolishness. Friends, like the Ephesians were in Paul's day, surrounded by and coming out of an ungodly culture that needed reminders of who they were in Christ and what Christ has done for them, for those in Him, we need to be reminded of who we are 
in Christ, in what Christ has done for us. And often, surrounded by and coming out of a fallen world ourselves. Not only ought we personally to be steeped in the Word of God as the standard coming also under the teaching and preaching or proclamation of the Word with the gathering of the saints on the Lord's Day because we are weak, forgetful, and living in a fallen world, we also ought to be in prayer. Not only in thanks to God, but in prayer for one another, which brings us to Ephesians 1, 15-16 today. Let's read Ephesians 1, 15-16. It says this, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And we'll touch on the content of Paul's remembering them in his prayers that follow these verses, Lord willing, next time. But Paul, to begin with, offers thanks to God. He offers thanks to God, which is what I'm entitling the sermon today. For what? One, for the saints faith in the Lord Jesus. And two, their love toward all the saints at Ephesus, which was reported to Paul. For these reasons, Paul doesn't stop giving thanks to God. Now, if you're paying careful attention, real close attention to the content of the text itself, it seems a bit odd for a couple different reasons. That Paul is giving thanks to God for the Ephesian church's faith in Jesus Christ and their love toward all the saints. Now why is it strange exactly? One, you remember that the letter is addressed to, addressed to the saints at Ephesus in verse 1. But isn't faith kind of a given for saints? Something that's to be expected? As Ephesians 2.8.9 states, we, the saints, are saved by grace through what church? Grace through Faith. Now the Greek term for faith is pistis, which can also mean belief or trust. Let me put that in quotes. Or, quote, trust with an implication that actions based on that 
trust may follow. So a trust that results in actions. We talked last week about a type of belief in God that fails to produce obedience or action. If you have no faith in Jesus Christ alone, that is, if you are not trusting in Christ alone, the fruits of which will produce as the overarching practice of your life obedience to his word. If you're not trusting Christ alone, the fruits of which will produce as the overarching practice of your life obedience to his word, you are not a saint. You are not a part of the body of Christ. Faith, therefore, is a given for the saints. But there's at least two things I want us to know about faith before we move on to the second strange thing about the text. One, if it's true saving faith, if you at one point, if you at one point in your life truly believed the gospel, trusted in Christ alone for your salvation, you'll still be trusting him right now. There's no such thing as, well, one time in my life I trusted Christ. At one time I had faith in him. At one time I was a Christian. Ken mentioned it last message as I did the message prior, that if you at one time trusted Christ, and now you no longer do, you were never of Christ. First John 2.19, they went out from us because they were never of us. And to the second thing that I want us to note about faith is there is such a thing as little faith and great faith as a believer. Let's turn to Matthew 14. Matthew 14. We're going to be looking at verses 22 to 33. Again, we're looking at little faith and great faith as a believer. Matthew 22 to 33. Let's read. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat. It's Jesus. And go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after, after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. 
he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And then when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And when Jesus said, Do not be afraid, Peter at least showed he had some faith in Jesus in coming to him on the water when commanded by Jesus. But when, Jesus, when Peter started witnessing the wind kicking up around him, as verse 30 says, he was afraid. Notice that Jesus didn't describe Peter as a man of great faith for stepping out on the water with him. But describe Peter as a man of little faith as a result of his doubting. Let's, uh, across the page, you might have to turn a page, let's look at Matthew 15. <coughs> Excuse me. We're going to read verses 21 through 28. which says this, And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from the region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Uh, here we have a Canaanite woman that, was that essentially appears to be denied her th request three times. One, Jesus, in the woman's plea for her daughter, at first did not answer her a word, verse 23. Two, Jesus then states he was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, in verse 24. With the woman's plea for help, verse 25, Jesus says it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, verse 26. Now, who would have given up at this point? But Jesus describes this Canaanite woman, the dog, as it were, in Jesus' illustration, as a woman of great faith who apparently by God's grace saw the bigger picture of Jesus' illustration, not doubting Jesus at all, and as a result grants the woman's request. 
So there is such a thing as little faith and great faith. Now, I want to be clear, there's no such thing as having 94% faith in Christ, what someone might deem as great faith, when it comes to being justified before God. Or declared righteous by faith in Christ. And there's no such thing as 17% faith in Christ, what might be deemed as little faith when it comes to being declared righteous If someone has 90% faith in Christ for salvation, they have no faith and remain in unbelief. You are either for Christ 100% or against him 0% as Jesus states in Matthew 12.30. There's no such thing as having one foot in Christ and one foot in the world or in unbelief. You are either in Christ or outside of Christ, for Him or against Him. Anything other than that, you're deceiving yourself. As Charles Spurgeon once said in a sermon entitled, Little Faith and Great Faith, on November 2nd, 1890, he says this, he says, quote, between the very lowest degree of faith as a, and a state of unbelief, so between the lowest degree of faith and a state of unbelief, there's a great gulf. The weakest believer is on the road to heaven. The other, having no faith, is going the downward roll, road And he will find his portion at last among the unbelievers, a terrible portion indeed. Spurgeon continues, Although we thus speak of believers as all of one company, there is yet a great distance between weak or little faith and strong or great faith. Strong faith is content without signs. It believes God's bare word and asks for no confirming miracle. Unquote. Now this may explain the great faith of the Canaanite woman in that there were not only a lack of signs, but an abundance of signs that were apparently telling her no. There is a similar correlation with the Ephesian church's love for all the saints that Paul was giving thanks to God in prayer. Isn't it something to be expected? Isn't it something to be expected that the saints are to love brothers and sisters in Christ? You know, indeed, it's 1 John 4.20 states, Quote, if anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. I'm sorry, for he who does not love his brother, whom he 
has seen cannot love God with whom he has not seen. I don't know if I read that right. It didn't sound right. So love for the saints really is a given for believers as well. If you do not love a brother or sister in Christ, you do not love God. As 1 John 4, 7-8 says, Beloved, let us love one another, that is, the saints, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now, as there is such a thing as believers having little faith and great faith, there's also such a thing as believers having little love and great love. Let's turn to Luke 7. Luke 7, I'm going to grab some water. We're going to read verses 41 to 50. 7, Luke 7, 41 to 50 says this. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now this is uh, uh, Jesus uh, stating this. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to them, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at, the, at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this? Who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So here we have an illustration of Jesus, uh, an, an illustration Jesus gives of a money lender who cancels the debt of two people who could not pay. One who owed little, the other owed much. The one who owed much loved much in response to being forgiven. 
as opposed to the one who owed little. He loved little in response to being forgiven the debt. But they were both forgiven the debt. Then Jesus turns to a woman at his feet in a real life, real time scenario. Simon gave no water for Jesus' feet, nor offered a kiss, which was a way they greeted one another, implying, implying acceptance and friendship. Nor did Simon anoint Jesus' head with oil. But the woman wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, did not cease to kiss Jesus' feet and anointed Jesus' feet with ointment. This is a very picture of loving little in response to being forgiven little. Simon, in this instance. And loving much in response to being forgiven much. The woman, in this instance, whose sins were many. To get back to our point in Ephesians 1, 15 to 16, in Paul giving thanks to God for their faith and their love for the saints, what really should be a given for anybody, naming the name of Christ, we can see Paul is implying that the Ephesian church had great faith in Christ. Great love for all the saints. Which also implies a growing, a growing faith in Christ. And a growing in love for all the saints. Seeing as he visited the Ephesian church around 10 years prior to writing this letter. To the other reason why Paul giving thanks to God for the Ephesian church's faith in Jesus Christ and love for all the saints is somewhat strange is that Paul gives thanks to God for their faith and love for all the saints. If it's their faith, why is Paul giving thanks to God and not commending the saints at Ephesus? That would make sense, wouldn't it? Here we have that tension that we find throughout Scripture. Who is responsible for their faith in the Lord Jesus. Who's responsible for their love for all the saints? Who is responsible for your faith in Christ and your love for all the saints? And the short answer to that question is yes. But not in the sense that it's a 50-50 partnership especially in regards to justification or being declared righteous before God. That is, in a synergistic slash Arminian, you do your part and God will do his 
uh, kind of way. But I also would say it's not necessarily a 50-50 partnership in our sanctification either. It's really all of God. Our justification, sanctification, etc. But not in the sense where we do nothing. But also not in the sense where we can boast of anything. Are you following? Welcome to the tension of Scripture. There are several verses to illustrate this tension. We'll look at two briefly. One as it relates to our justification and one as it relates to our sanctification. We looked at Romans 8.30 in the past. Let's turn there, Romans 8. Read verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. From predestination to glorification, God does it all. Not losing one, he has predestined. All those predestined by him are all those that are glorified by him. But between his calling us and his justifying us, However, there is a believing in the name of Christ. John 1, 12 to 13. There's a coming to Jesus, as John 6, 37 states. Who's responsible for us coming to Jesus with Romans 8, 30 in mind? You know, think before you answer. Do you see the tension? This is that tension of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility that we see in Scripture. Let's turn to Philippians 2. Philippians 2. Let's read verses 12 to 13. Philippians 2, 12 and 13, it states this. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work of his good pleasure. 
they are to work out this salvation that is presently theirs into every aspect of their lives. What does that look like? Submitting with fear and trembling to God. Why? Because He is working in them both to will or working in them the desire to do and He's working in them to work or working in them the power to do. What exactly? To do, quote, his good pleasure. Verse 13. And what is, quote, unquote, his good pleasure? Obedience to his word such as putting off the old self and putting on the new self in Christ as Ephesians 4 states and all the other commands he has for his children. And if you work against his working in you, you have reason to fear and tremble. He will discipline his wayward children. But it will be for your good. If you are his, as Hebrews 12, 10 states. So the question arises, as a result, who is responsible for our sanctification? Us, who are commanded to work out our salvation with fear and trembling? Or God, who is working in us both to will and to do? Or to work for his good pleasure? If you answer either or, you're wrong. If I myself were to answer someone this question in a quick summary that I believe agrees with Scripture of who is responsible for our justification or sanctification and such in our Christian walk, I would say something on the lines of this. It's not a 50-50 partnership. It's all of God, yet we play a part but not to the point where we can boast of anything in and of ourselves. We can only truly take credit for our weaknesses and faults. All of this really is to help us understand what Paul means in our original text in Ephesians 1, 15-16, when he gives thanks to God for their faith in the Lord Jesus, and their love toward all the saints. In closing, let me ask you today, church, is your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ growing? Notice that I didn't say a little or a lot. Is your faith or reliance upon the Lord Jesus Christ growing at all. Are you growing in good works? Notice I didn't ask if you are growing a little or a lot. 
Are you growing in good works at all? Remember the definition of faith is, quote, trust with an implication that actions based on that trust may follow. Our faith has a direct connection to what we do as the fruit of that faith. As James 2 talks about, if you're not growing in good works, you're not growing in faith. What about your love for all the saints? Are you growing? Notice I didn't ask if you were growing a little or a lot. Are you growing in your love for, this, for all saints at all? Please keep in mind, growing in love for all the saints is also inextricably tied to good works. As 1 John 3.18 says, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. And growing in good deeds or good works, as stated, are the fruit of growing in faith. You ask, how do we grow in faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and therefore grow in love and or good deeds slash works toward, toward the saints? Romans 10, 17 says, So faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. To what degree are you in the word of God. To what degree are you exposed to faithful preaching and teaching? I'm not just talking about here at church on Sundays. The desire would be that we all grow greatly in faith and love in a manner worthy of the attention of others. As in the case of Apostle Paul towards the Ephesian Church's growth in faith and love. But to be growing at all, even if it is a little, is telling of your place in Christ. As John 15 explains, you would not be able to produce anything were you not connected to the vine which is Christ. If you are growing even a little, you can give thanks to God that He is faithful to do this work in and through you and to prune you to produce more fruit for His glory. If you are not producing fruit at all, as stated in a message prior, you are a branch that may be connected to the visible church outwardly, but you are not connected to Christ. And your end is to be burned. My plea to you is to, by faith, throw yourself upon the mercy of God through Christ 
who was made to be sin on your behalf, that you might become the righteousness of God in him, 2 Corinthians 5.21. And in your coming to Christ by faith, you can give thanks to God for doing so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we just acknowledge you as um, the one and only to give thanks for what you've done for your saints and what you're doing in and through your saints. Lord God, we thank you and praise you. Lord, I pray that we might reflect upon these things often God, as we live in this fallen world, as the things of this world try to creep in, and that, God, help us to be faithful, to remain in your word, to be steeped in your word. Um, I think about uh, the scripture in Deuteronomy where we're to uh, sit and talk your word. While we're lying down, while we're standing, walking, God, may it fill our lives, Lord. We can all grow in this area. Just pray that uh, just might work in us um, for your glory, that we might be better able also to communicate with the world out there that needs to hear and believe the gospel. Lord, help us to be faithful in communicating that in truth and by your spirit. Lord God, we just thank you for this Christmas season. Pray that you'd be with us. Pray that we might be united in love for one another we might spur one another on to love and good works as we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Lord, help us to walk a life of obedience more and more, growing in faith and love for all the saints. In Jesus' name, amen.